Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Today we begin a one-week series from Dr. Newfeld called Faith and What We Hope For. So let's turn in our Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11, verses 1 and 2, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message entitled, What We Are Hoping For. Everyone has hopes and dreams for the new year. Of course, there are the obligatory resolutions. You know, I'm going to take out a membership in the gym and lose 25 pounds and watch what I eat, or I'm going to go back to school and finally get that degree that I've been talking about for all these years. Or I'm going to get my courage up and ask that gorgeous young gal out in my church. And by the way, that last one, you don't need a resolution, just do it already. Or I'm going to reconcile a relationship that's fallen apart, some more serious. And then, of course, apart from the resolutions are our hopes and dreams. I'd love to buy my own home. I think I can retire this year, and I want to travel. I'm starting my own business. I'm hoping it turns out well. And then the more sober hopes, I hope my medical test will show the cancer has gone into remission. Ah, we not only hope, we look for ways in which we can make our hope become a reality. Did you know that what you're hoping for is in every way shaped by the people whom you admire? You know, perhaps you admire a number of entrepreneurs and you wanted to be one too. Or how many teachers became teachers because they loved a certain teacher? And I'll tell you this with assurance. If every teacher you ever had discouraged you or bored you or angered you or let you down, well, I can say most definitively, you would not have become a teacher. We want to emulate our heroes. A great many of us become the very people we admire the most. They are our encouragers. They are the great company of witnesses who tell us the path that we're on is the right path. So during this week, I want to spend some time in a few sections of Hebrews 11. It's about faith and the things we we hope for, the things we yearn to have happen, and the things we want to achieve. So where do we begin? Well, let's start, strangely enough, with Hebrews 12. You know, after Hebrews 11, and this won't surprise you, but after Hebrews 11, yep, comes Hebrews 12. And that chapter begins with a summarizing statement, and it's a statement meant to encapsulate all of chapter 11. So Hebrews 12, verse 1, tells us why Hebrews 11 was written. It says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses... Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Now look, that that verse doesn't say that the heroes of the faith that have gone before us are watching us in heaven or that they're cheering us on as we're running our race today. You know, I've heard people say that. Well, Hebrews 12 verse 1, they say, depicts us running on a racetrack where the stands are crowded with the great heroes of the faith of the past, and they're cheering us on. Go for it, they shout. And I suppose that's a nice thought, but it's not what's being said here. Look, there is no verse in the Bible that gives us any indication that those who are in heaven are able to see us. You know, I, for one, am I'm actually happy about that, especially when I'm doing my morning bathroom duties. I don't want anyone cheering me on there when I'm in the bathroom. And furthermore, when we imagine the dead are watching us, I'm afraid we're only one step away from imagining that we're able to communicate with the dead. And that leads to everything that's condemned in the scriptures. 
You know, when Jesus told the account of the rich man and the beggar Lazarus, both of them died and the rich man was in Hades, that is, he was in torment. And from there, strangely enough, he's able to see Abraham. Although how that was possible, I guess we just don't know. But he has a request that Abraham send Lazarus, who is now in glory, that he send him back to earth. And he asks, send him back to speak to my brothers and warn them about what is to come. And then he's told that his brothers have Moses and the prophets, and that's enough. In short, they have the scriptures, they have the Bible. It is enough. So let me say it again. There is no Bible reference that the dead are able to see us. Indeed, there are plenty of warnings in the Bible that we are not to attempt to communicate with the dead. And so the people who say, you know, I know that mum or dad is looking down on me. Well, no, you actually don't know that at all. Most likely, they're not looking down on you. And and furthermore, it should be enough that your creator takes interest in you and that he has dispatched his angels on your behalf. Be encouraged by that. Well, then what does Hebrews 12.1 mean? That we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. Well, you want to remember that Hebrews 12.1 is a summary statement about the value and the meaning and the application of Hebrews chapter 11. What Hebrews 11 teaches us is that the record of faithful lives of those who have gone before us, that record witnesses to us or that record testifies to us. These faithful men and women of God, even though they're now gone from this earth, they have, however, left a record behind them. Their record of faithfulness tells us that following our God or trusting our God, living a life of faith is worthwhile. Indeed, it's the most amazingly adventurous life we can lead. That's what they experienced. And from that, we learned that's what we can experience as well. See how tragic it would be to to carry around with us the burden or the weight of unconfessed sin. That would mean our attachments to worldly pleasure and short-term joys. All this might keep us from the most amazing adventure, that is, the adventure of living by faith. That's what Hebrews 11 is all about. It's It's a list of real people. They're imperfect people, but people filled with faith and an illustration of how to live our lives today. Their lives, which have now been lived, their race, which has now been run, Their battles for the glory of God, which have now been fought and won. These things are witnesses that surround us. Now, before I go on, please forgive me. I need to ride one of my hobby horses for just a moment. Bear with me. If you're a church librarian, let me give you a hint. Pack your church library with the biographies of great men and women who have gone before. Make sure you have biographies that relate to every single age group. I mean, don't you know, the boys and girls of your church need heroes. They need examples to emulate. I mean, why should their heroes be movie stars and sports stars and who knows who else? They need a great company of witnesses to them about faithfulness and about what the worthwhile life actually looks like. Okay, I've gotten that off my chest. So let's get back to Hebrews 11 or let's read Hebrews 11, 1 to 2. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old received their commendation. I hope you didn't miss that. The way in which great men and women of the past received approval from God, or the way in which they pleased God, was not on the basis of what they had accomplished, 
Rather, it was on the basis of their faith or their trust in God. Now, stop for a moment and consider that. I'm not saying that these men and women didn't accomplish anything. I mean, they did. You want evidence of that? Well, have a look later in the chapter, Hebrews 11, 32 to 34. What more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Yeah, the great heroes of the faith had anything but boring lives. Their lives were filled with adventure and danger and delight. They needed courage. They needed creativity. They were men and women with vast and great goals, and they accomplished things that changed this world. Make no mistake about it. These are the people who should genuinely be our heroes. We should all wonder, I mean, could my life be like that? Instead of thinking of a new year as, well, I guess it's going to be the same old, same old. Well, we should imagine what might be possible if we had a grand purpose, if we had courage, if if we were willing to risk, and if we were willing to trust God. And that brings me back to the main thing. The reason the people of Hebrews 11 were commended by God had nothing to do with what they accomplished, but instead had everything to do with their faith. That is, it had everything to do with whom they trusted. The defining mark of these men and women is that they trusted in their God. They lived lives with a commitment that the promises of God were the basis upon which they would stake their lives. And after that, it got really exciting. Look, in one sense, everyone lives by faith. And what I mean here is that everyone bases the decisions in their life on a series of things that they believe. Let's just say that everyone has an ideal of what makes for a good life. And for that, we trust in everyone from pastors and teachers to movie stars or experts in a given field. Well, these great heroes of the faith in Hebrews 11, they trusted fully in what God had said and what he had promised. That was the basis of all of their grand adventures, and that's why they didn't just want to be safe and boring. Now that their race is run and their lives are finished, now it's time to investigate whether or not the things they had believed was worthwhile. Hi, Ben Lola, back to the Bible Canada. On behalf of the entire ministry team, I'd like to wish you a very Merry Christmas. Thank you for tuning in to this station and supporting the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada with your prayers and financial gifts. May we together take pleasure in the festivities of the season, but also keep at the forefront of our hearts and minds the promise of God kept through the arrival of His Son. Christmas reminds us that God keeps His promises. His Son would make the ultimate sacrifice that we might be forgiven and enter into a renewed relationship with our Father in Heaven. If you feel lost, lonely, or troubled this season, remember He came that you might have life. The child of God is never alone. Merry Christmas, and may this message of the season fill you with the joy and hope that can only come from a promise kept. Hebrews 11.1 begins with a definition of faith. Faith, it says, is the assurance of things hoped for. 
Now, the NIV translation says, faith is the confidence of things hoped for. So that word confidence, or even assurance, well, might give us the idea of an inner optimism or a subjective feeling of certainty or of self-assurance. But that's not what Hebrews 11 is saying. The Greek word being translated here is the word hypostasis. And if you know a little bit about church history, you'll know that the word hypostasis, well, it was a part of one of the biggest theological battles in the history of the church. It's called the hypostatic union. It's the union of Jesus' humanity with his deity, that he is both fully God and fully man at the same time. Well, let me explain. Back in Hebrews 1 verse 3, If we'd been studying the entire book of Hebrews, we would have there read about Jesus. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Now, that word nature, yeah, that's our word, hypostasis. Now, did you notice our Bible translators translated the word hypostasis as nature in Hebrews 1 verse 3, and then they translated that same word as either assurance or confidence in Hebrews 11 verse 1. So are you confused yet? Well, I am, and if you are, hang in there because I'm going to explain. In Hebrews 1 verse 3, the writer of Hebrews is trying to show us that Jesus the Son shares the same nature or the identical nature to that of the Father. That is, what can be said about the Father can also be said about the Son. For instance, the Father is eternal. That is his nature, and that also is the nature of the Son. He too That is, he too shares fully in the divine nature or in the divine hypostasis. You should get the idea. Nature or hypostasis is a reference to the essence of something or someone. In reference to God, the nature of God or the hypostasis of God is about that which is essential to God being God. That God is eternal, that's essential to God. That God is holy, that he is all-knowing, all-powerful, that he never changes. All these attributes of God are a part of his essence, essential to his being or his hypostasis. That's the word hypostasis. Now, in church history, that was the debate surrounding the essential nature of Jesus. You know, Bible believers who say, I believe, as I do in the hypostatic union, what we mean is, I believe that all that is essential to being God and also all that is essential to being human is who Jesus is. I hope you see, hypostasis, that's an important word. It means the true essence of something. So we're getting back now to Hebrews 11, verse 1. Faith, it says, is the hypostasis of things hoped for. Now, if we translate that word as confidence, faith is the confidence of things hoped for, I think it's the wrong word. Look, you can be confident about something and then be entirely wrong. Let me suggest an example. You know, in the United States, Peter Neufeld and Barry Sheck have begun an organization called the Innocence Project. Using DNA evidence, they have found a number of people who have been wrongfully imprisoned. And what's fascinating about this project is how many law enforcement officers have refused to believe the evidence. They remain confident the person they tried and convicted is guilty. Even while the scientific evidence now proves conclusively that the person in question could not have committed the crime. And that's the problem with confidence. You see, all sorts of people are confident about all sorts of things. I've had atheist friends who are confident there is no God. 
I've known people who are confident that some half-baked and phony treatment is going to cure them of cancer. Confidence about things is in no short supply in this world, and sometimes the most cocky individuals display the most unrealistic self-confidence. And when it comes to faith, that's how some people understand faith. Faith in their thinking is simply confidence. I just believe because I believe because I believe because I believe. I know because I know because I know because I know. As one person once told me, I believe against all the evidence. Hear me. That's not the biblical definition of faith. The great men and women of the past are not defined by their confidence in something they couldn't prove. Now, I, for my part, like the translation of Hebrews 11 verse 1 that comes from the Christian Standard Bible. It says, now faith is the reality of what is hoped for. And I I think that gets at it. Faith is the essence of what is hoped for. It's the true nature of what we hope for. That's what faith is. Now, what you hope for, well, hope, well, that has something to do with what? The future. So let me quote from William Mounts. He's a great Greek teacher, and here's what he says about this verse. He says that faith is the substance of the future or the essential nature of the future. Mounts says that faith realizes the future. Faith has obtained a foretaste of the future. Mounts says that it's like when anyone is so excited about something and so expectant of it that they can say, I can already taste it now. That is, the future is already a part of their experience right now. And that's what made the great men and women of faith so exemplary. They, Although they had heard of God's promises and were viewing these promises from afar, they were in some fashion already experiencing in their own lives the very essence of the future. Therefore, for them, the future was not just the future. It was a part of their present experience. In essence, they already, in some mysterious sense, were living in a world that was yet to come. These great men and women had already begun to experience the kernel of God's future, even while they eagerly anticipated what was yet to come. Hypostasis, the true nature of something. See, in this case, faith, the hypostasis, or the essential nature of things hoped for. Let me compare that to Paul's words in Romans 8.23. He says, not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. So notice the words that Paul uses here. We have the first fruits of the Spirit, he said it, and it's kind of like a down payment of a great deal more to come. And therefore, there's an inward groaning. There's a straining forward. There's an all-encompassing expectation. See, the future hope, that is, the hope of the reality that our bodies will be made new or redeemed, that hope is already being felt in us who believe today. That's what Paul says. Okay, let's get back to Hebrews 11.1. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So there are things that we have not seen, and yet we have already begun to experience. The world to come, even though I've not seen it yet in some mysterious fashion, through the work of the Holy Spirit in me, I have begun to experience that reality already. Now, does that make a difference? Well, yes, of course. I mean, once the future of Christ's kingdom is already established within you, you're going to start to live like it. You'll say, I have no hope in this doomed and decaying world, but I have a citizenship in the world to come. 
And for that reason, I'm not living my life as if my joy were attached to this world. What I'm hoping for is not here. No, no, sir, it's not here. I have a foretaste of what is to come. And all of that makes me want to strain forward toward the future. And that's the reason that Abraham left Ur of the Chaldeans and went to a land that God had promised him. And that's why Moses abandoned the treasures of Egypt. And that's why David conquered kingdoms. Everything those men did was because they had already tasted the future and that taste had shaped everything they hoped for. It is for that reason that a man or a woman of faith might enjoy this present world, but not be attached to the present world. For my home is in the celestial city whose builder and architect is God. And therefore, if in this world I lose all things, including my money and my health and the praise of men or a good reputation here, I mean, if I lose that, I have lost nothing at all. As Paul said, I consider it manure, for I know that this is a doomed world and I have no attachment to that which is passing away. So how about you? Have you glimpsed that? If you have, I promise you, your life will be an adventure. And if not, I fear for you. You might have confidence, but clearly your confidence is badly misplaced. So having said that, look again at Hebrews 1 verse 2. For by it, that is by faith, the people of old received their commendation. You see, all the heroes of the faith were approved by God, not because of what they did, but because of the faith that lived in their souls. That's the difference that faith makes. The heroes we should emulate are the great men and women of faith. May we become one of them and join their ranks and be men and women of faith ourselves. John, I think there's maybe some confusion about the idea of of what I can do for God rather than the idea of what can God do for me. I think we have to be very careful uh, that uh, the things that we do for God, I mean, God doesn't actually need us to do anything for him. Um, He, however, in in wonderful delight, allows us to participate in in uh, in his activity. But the greatest thing that we can do is what the ancients did. They were commended for their faith, their their trust in God. They thought God was trustworthy. They thought that the promises of God were sure and amen. And these are the things that commended them. And we need to remember this is also will be our story. If we learn to trust God, this is the greatest thing that we can accomplish in this life. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, Faith and What We Hope For, right here on Back to the Bible Canada where we teach the Bible. This year, God has blessed the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada with both the increased opportunity and provision to teach the Bible. It's undeniable that His helping hand has been at work as we reflect on everything he has allowed Back to the Bible Canada to accomplish on his behalf. Now we look forward to all he has in store for 2023. This calendar year end, Back to the Bible Canada has a goal to raise $519,000 by December 31st. This will help position the ministry to carry out all the plans God has crafted for his glory. Now each of us has the privilege to participate in sharing the gospel through the trustworthy teaching of His Word. Your partnership plays a crucial role in ensuring the ongoing ministry of Back to the Bible Canada, and we are beyond grateful for it. To offer a gift toward our year-end goal, 
just call 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.